First Peter 4, verse 1. Jesus suffered in the flesh to do away with sin. This is the announcement. This is the truth of the gospel. I love that as we open up the scripture, we understand the context of this verse. God led Peter to give these words to a church, to a culture of Christians who were suffering under persecution. And their direction was to, to not be consumed with all the turmoil that was around them, but to focus on the very foundation of their faith, which expresses God's grace. Peter's message was clear to them. God's grace can be proven in suffering. The same stands true for you and for me today. I love the story of the respected and beloved author and apologist Ravi Zacharias. He was asked to lecture on the campus of Ohio State University, and his driver was transporting him to the lecture hall when they drove right past a brand-new constructed building, the Wexner Arts Center. The driver, with, with pride, pointed to the building and said, that is a very unique building. It's beautifully designed to express the point of view of a postmodern's perception of reality. Well, Ravi Zacharias heard that and was intrigued, and then the man went on to describe the building. He said, inside that building are staircases that lead to nowhere, constructed pillars that support nothing. The whole blueprint re reflects a senseless and an and absence of direction and order. Well, he thought that the apologist would be impressed, but Ravi Zacharias looked inquisitively at the building and then back to the driver and said, I hope you didn't take the same liberty with the foundation of the building. I love that response because the, the heart of that response is found here. The foundation of our truth, regardless of, of what the world may say is right or is real, the foundation of our truth must be embraced and our feet must not leave the foundation. Yet above the surface, there are many perceptions of what is true and how to make sense of suffering, but oh, we can't leave the foundation. This morning, I invite you to walk with me through the fourth chapter of 1 Peter to, to understand some incredibly significant and basic foundational truths of our lives, especially as it relates to grace being proven in the midst of suffering. Uh, for just a moment, focus with me on these verses as we as we discover first the theology of grace, don't allow the word theology to, to push you back because in the midst of a world where, where all things seem to be shifting and are uncertain, we need truth. We need absolutes. So first, I'd like to, to join you in discovering the, the simple theology of grace. Second, let's discover a grace that forms our lifestyle because grace applied to our lives is obviously life-changing. And then third, let's discover the reality of grace, even in the midst of adversity. Now, these truths are very basic, reminding me of how most of us engaged in university and college uh, studies. Uh, we, we are familiar with the classification of courses numbered 101. Now, they represent the basics, the foundation upon which all the other courses build. And so, although basic, very necessary for direction and for understanding the truth, and so this morning, I'd like to give you a 101 perspective of, of grace and how grace changes our lives. So let's begin with the theology of grace. I like to refer to this as grace 101. Now look with me in verse 1 of 
1 Peter chapter 4. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has done away with sin. Now, obviously, Christ is being described as the one who has done away with sin, but he's perfect. So, obviously, there is no sin related to his life. So, what sin is referenced when the phrase is is presented, he's done away with sin? Well, the, the sin represents our lives, our sin. Jesus has done away with sin. And so in Grace 101, we first understand that grace is saving grace. In the midst of suffering, oh, how we need to claim and and cling to the truth that God's grace is a grace that has allowed us to to have sin forgiven and to truly be saved from sin. I I love the, the verse of Colossians chapter 2, 14, which reminds us that our sin, this debt, that is called sin, has been taken away and nailed to the cross. Romans 6.14 reminds us that because of this truth, sin no longer masters us because we're, we're not under the law. We are under grace. What is grace? Grace is saving grace, God's gift to us that we haven't deserved or merited. And oh, in the midst of suffering, God led Peter to remind the first century church Don't forget what Christ has done. As you're suffering, Christ all the more suffered so that your sin could be taken away. Grace is the factor here. And so in the midst of suffering and uncertainty, we cling to grace. That is a saving grace. That's absolute. And that is certain if your faith is in Christ. Um, Let's read verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And so verse 1 reminds us, arm yourself with the same purpose that is seen as Christ in Christ when he suffered. So the, the emphasis with the phrase arm yourself in verse 1 points to verse 2. What are we arming ourselves with? A focus that allows us to look past the flesh and to focus on the will of God. And so the will of God here doesn't reference his specific will concerning questions like what will my career look like and who will I marry? But the, the meaning will of God actually references one's life of direction, guidance, behavior, and attitude as reflecting that which God desires of his children. And so, yes, grace is a saving grace. But secondly, grace is a sustaining grace. Because in verse 1 and 2, we're told to arm ourselves with the same approach wherein Christ expressed when he knew to obey God would be to follow in suffering, yet to please him. And you and I are, are, are going to experience moments of suffering and heartache and resistance. But our goal is to honor and to obey God. Our goal is the will of God. So not only is grace a saving grace, and Jesus suffered so that our sin could be taken away, But grace is also a sustaining grace, according to verse 2, because we're no longer living in the flesh. If we've truly armed ourselves, if we've truly become equipped with with Christ and and with his presence in our life, then yes, we we are seeking the will of God. Grace is not only a saving grace and a sustaining grace, but this grace is also a defining grace. Well, I love this truth. Now we're in verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And then there are some five descriptions 
of, of what can be de- de- described as pagan behavior, uh, sexual immorality, carousing, drunkenness. And after those five specific words, then there is a phrase that describes uh, pagan worship, uh, uh, abominable idolatries. Uh, this entire gathering of, of very negative vices is categorized under Peter's phrase, the desire of the Gentiles. Now notice that the the third description of of grace for our lives is that God's grace through Christ is a defining grace setting us apart. When Peter used the term Gentiles, he's, he's referencing not the ethnicity, for in his audience there were many of a Gentile ethnicity, but he's actually referencing a Jewish commentary of, of, of mankind where there were simply two uh, divisions. Uh, one, Jews belonging to God, and then all others. And Peter has this in mind when he describes Gentiles as those who do not know Christ, who are following their own way. But, but Peter is led by God to remind the Christians of the first century you were, you were behaving like the Gentiles long enough. That's over. You're under God's grace, and you've been set apart. Hence, a grace that's defining, a grace that defines us. This is really powerful. And verse 5 and 6 actually gives us the reason why this focus on grace is so important. Now, in, in verse 4 we read, in all of this, uh, they are surprised that you no longer act as they do in the excess of dispensation, meaning those who possibly were participating with Peter's audience before members of Peter's audience had trusted Jesus, uh, those former friends are probably surprised at how uh, a life is turned over and is changed by Christ. But then Peter in verse 5 and 6 gives a reason why this pronouncement of grace is so important. Verse 5, everyone will give an account to God. Uh, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So why is this conversation of grace so important? Because we, we're we accountable to God. We're accountable to the truth of Christ. And Peter writes the church to remind them, you're under God's grace, a grace that has saved, sustained, and defined your life. But there are those who refuse Christ, and, and they're under God's judgment. And verse 6 then reminds us that there are those who who have died but, but they're, no, they're no longer judged by the flesh. They're, they're judged according to the Spirit of God, according to the will of God in their lives. So Peter describes those who have trusted Christ in this life. And because, uh, because grace matters, that is the preparation for the life to come. And this is Peter's message. Grace matters. And, and if you're under his grace, you, you depend upon that grace that saves, sustains you, and defines you. And this is vital because we'll all stand before God as our judge. And, and, and we are all not concluding our existence in this life. There is a life to come. And only grace is the way to prepare for that life. So, yes, Peter was used by God to prepare the first century church to face suffering by reminding them of of the grace of God that that has poured into their life through Jesus Christ. And I I love calling this section of verses uh, Grace 101. I I love this conversation that Pastor Tim Keller reveals with someone that uh, was a member of his congregation yet had not made a commitment to, to follow Jesus. And this is what Keller writes. Some years ago, I met with a person who had been coming to our church, but they had never heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion, meaning uh, between grace and what is often called works-based 
grace or works-based righteousness. This person had always heard that God accepts us only if we're good enough. This person said that this new message of the grace actually frightened her. Keller writes, when I asked her why it frightened her, this is what she said. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God would ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there is nothing that I can do except thank God for his salvation. And then she concludes with this. There is nothing that God can't ask of me. My life now belongs to him. Grace always encourages a life well lived. I love that statement. And so now we move to a a, a second truth, a second foundation uh, in chapter four from this incredible reminder of, of grace, the theology of grace, grace 101. We now move to grace that forms our lifestyles. Grace that should always encourage a life well lived. I like referring to this section of scripture as Christian living 101. Because what we're about to read, beginning in verse 7, represents who we truly are as one who's been affected by God's grace. You might even say what we're about to read is actually normal and not the exceptional. And so let's test ourselves with these verses to make absolutely certain that even in the midst of suffering, we're living our lives in response to God's grace. Oh, his grace that saves, sustains, and defines us is vital in the midst of suffering because suffering and persecution and adversity can cause you to default back to dangerous lapses in faith and, and it can cause you to return back to a life once lived. And now that we understand grace forms our lifestyle, how much more vital it is to see that our journey as followers of Jesus is a daily response to the grace that God is pouring into our life. So, so we don't respond to the circumstance, nor do we respond to the oppressor or to the adversary. We respond to grace. And this is what responding to grace can look like in my life and in your life. Uh, in verse 7, this is what we read. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober in spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Now, I hope you'll lean in for just a moment. I'd like to share with you four specific ways that grace forms our lives. You might term this as four characteristics of Christian living, as, as I label this part, Christian living 101. The, the first is prayer. Notice in verse 7, God instructs Peter to write, hey, the end of all things is near. Now, obviously, the, the, the uh, theology student would recognize that as an eschatological statement, a statement pointing to the end time. But obviously, Peter is not pinpointing any particular event or date. He's describing what, what Scripture can refer to as the, the final process of, of this age of grace, this time of God's redemption, where, where every man has the opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond to Jesus by faith. And so, Peter is referencing this final uh, opportunity of, of redemption and salvation when he writes, the end of all things is near. But then Peter gives us this exhortation, but be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why? For the purpose of prayer. Now, these two words, uh, 
uh, sound judgment and sober spirit come from two distinct Greek terms that can actually together uh, define one reality, clear thinking. It's as if God has led Peter to say, your mind, follower Jesus, needs to be so clear, even in the midst of suffering, not so that you can figure a way out of your suffering, not so that you can defend yourself when you're attacked, not so that you can come up with a plan of how to strategize when your situation doesn't work out as you desire. No, your mind needs to be clear, divinely clear, for what purpose? For prayer. Prayer is the initial characteristic of the response of a life that is consumed with God's grace. You may say, no, it should be praise. Well, here we are called to prayer because grace in this context reminds us of our foundation, especially in the midst of suffering. And because of the grace that comes, our response is to cry out to the grace giver, to cry out and to, to constantly draw close to the heart of God and to the heart of Christ in prayer. And so Peter writes, have a, have a sober mind, have sound judgment, meaning do not allow your circumstances to cloud your thinking, but instead focus on prayer. The literal translation reads, have a sound judgment and sober spirit for the specific purpose of prayer. And so what is normal for a person who's been changed by God's grace? Prayer. Prayer is not reserved for the elite or for someone who is in a generation older than yours. No, prayer is, is normal for you. I love that in Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet, but don't just go in your closet. Shut the door. Prayer is very personal. I love how Hebrews 4 reminds us that we can actually spiritually go into God's throne room and make our requests known in our time of need. We can cry help. So prayer is personal and prayer is a cry of help. And 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 reminds us that we should pray unceasingly without stop. And so our prayer is our conversation genuinely and personally to God in moments where we cry out for, for help. So, Wow. What does Christian Living 101 define? It defines that we are people of prayer. We pray and we, we cry out uh, to the Lord. Uh, I love um, this quote from a, uh, a three-time all-pro defensive back by the name of Troy Palomau. Listen to his quote. He said this, As your prayer life becomes more and more fine-tuned and your conscience becomes more and more fine-tuned, through prayer, you are able to start plucking away at the things in your life that you knew were not pleasing to God. Oh, I love how prayer opens our heart to God's work and God's word and his way made known through Jesus Christ. So be a person of, of prayer. Uh, secondly, let's, let's move to, uh, to, to verse 8. Verse 8 says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. A, a, a second expression of, of a life that is formed by grace is simply love. Now, verse 8 describes this love as a fervent love. Contrasting the description of love we read uh, in the previous chapter when love was defined as compassion, here the idea of love is actually a love that endures through difficulty. And so I love how this expression gives us a pure picture of love. Um, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Proverbs 10, 12 gives us a very similar message from where I believe Peter drew this teaching. Uh, that proverb states this, hate stirs up dissension, love 
covers all wrong. Hate and love are opposite. And the statements that describe each are also uh, uh, contradistinctive. They're opposite. So hate stirs up dissension. Love covers sin. The opposite of stirring up dissension is to cover sin, but not to conceal and hide sin, but actually to step in. And when there is something wrong, to, to become through love one who protects others from the wrong that's developing. So you see, love doesn't just correct. Love protects. And here, what is very normal for the Christian life, especially in moments of suffering, is that we're constantly watching for others and we're loving fervently so that our, our love persists through difficulty, so that we're not stirring up dissension with our uh, needless critique of others, but we are actually trying to cover, meaning protect and restore those who are struggling in, in moments of suffering. You will have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, people of faith, maybe even people in your own circle of friends or family who are truly struggling and their eyes may be off the Lord. That's not a time to point and critique and to say, where are they? What's going on in your life? But to truly step in and to practice that love that covers, that love that seeks to restore and to seeks to heal. So this is a beautiful description of one whose life is covered with grace. Because when we've received God's grace, oh, we're giving grace. Ephesians 4.32 reminds us, be, be kind-hearted, be tender-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. So yes, we are to be people of love. Third, uh, looking at verse uh, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. So third expression of a life that is formed by God's grace is that we are hospitable. Now, this word hospitable can mean to entreat a stranger. Also, this word was used many times to, to indicate how one would allow someone to, to stay in their home overnight as, as uh, inns and accommodations were very primitive in Peter's day. But there's also a significant reference to how people gathered in homes for worship and for discipleship. And so this idea and call of hospitality reflects a meaningful gathering and reflects how we are we are drawn together as the people of God to worship together as one. And so when, when grace covers us, we're affected in our prayer and our love, but we're also affected in our gathering because the spirit of hospitality allows us to be open to one another, worshiping with one another regardless of whether or not we have similarity. But as long as Christ is the central focus, then we can worship and we can gather and we can fellowship. And so this is to which Peter made certain the first century church was called in the midst of suffering, especially when there's ex external conflict. Oh, the body of Christ gathers. And oh, how that spirit of acceptance and hospitality needs to be in place. And then finally, look at verse 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, meaning the, the many demonstrations of God's blessings and grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking on behalf of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and forever. A, a final expression of a life that is uh, formed by God's grace it's truly a life of service, one who serves well. So God's grace affects our life and forms us to be people of prayer, of love, of meaningful gathering or worshiping, and to be people who serve well. I love how the phrase is used, stewards of God's grace. There's the word again, God's grace, his manifold grace, his charis is the Greek term, his bountiful unmerited blessings. We are stewards of his grace in our lives. 
And however we serve, we're expressing his goodness to us. Now, Peter doesn't list the specific gifts of the Spirit that Paul might mention in in several locations, but here, Peter simply expresses, if you're speaking and God's gifted you to speak, you're speaking the utterances of God, meaning you're reflecting God. Or if you're serving, you're doing that with the strength and the resources of God, indicating that our lives are changed by His grace. And we serve others well because we've been touched by His grace. So what is normal for a Christian, especially in the face of suffering? Well, a Christian is one who is praying. A Christian is one who is, he's not only praying, he's loving well. He's graciously gathering with the saints in community and worshiping, and then he or she is serving well. This is normal. This is what is expected of us as we are affected by grace. So at this point, we've discovered the theology of grace, grace 101. And then we've also discovered grace that forms our lifestyle, Christian living 101. As we close, we move to a third perspective from chapter 4, the reality of grace in adversity. I like referring to this final section as suffering 101, verses 12 through 19. Uh, Beginning with verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at these fiery ordeals you face. Uh, Can I encourage you with this as a part of suffering 101 that we all as Christians will face in some degree? Unjust suffering should not surprise us. Doesn't mean we have to like or become the proverbial doormat to someone's uh, mistreatment, but unjust suffering should not surprise us. That's Paul's, uh, that's Peter's message of verse 12. Let's continue reading verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, are you ready for this? Keep on rejoicing. Even though we should not be surprised at unjust suffering, Secondly, as we try to unpack suffering 101 for our lives, uh, in suffering, there is always joy. Now, that is a high calling that someone in the midst of suffering would say, I have joy. Uh, Notice that we're not called to enjoy the suffering. We are called to have joy in the midst of the suffering. Verse 13 puts it this way. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may result rejoice with exultation. Our our present circumstance can't even compare to when we're with Jesus. So our focus is there, giving us that harder to rejoice because anything uncomfortable here is obviously temporary. Our home here is temporary. Our lives, our health, this physical tent, all temporary. We have an eternal home with Jesus and we look to that for our joy. So yes, uh, in suffering there is joy. Uh, Verse 14 if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are, you are blessed because the spirit of, of glory and of God rests on you. God's spirit covers you in suffering. Well, this is the message of verse 14. God has taken up his abode in your life and his spirit reflects the glory of Christ. And his spirit is your, is your ongoing presence of God. And in the midst of your suffering, God God is with you. You you haven't lost his presence. If you're in the midst of a a very difficult moment, his spirit is is with you. Oh, this is the reality of grace in our adversity. Uh, Look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God. And verse 17, for it it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us first, What will the outcome be 
of those who do not obey the gospel. Uh, in our suffering, we can bring honor to God. That's the message of verses 15 through 18. In our suffering, God can be honored. Uh, yes, judgment begins in the house of God. We're not held accountable for a life we formerly lived and have been saved from by grace, but we're accountable to our response to God, especially in the midst of trials and sufferings. Will we, will we forget our way forward in faith and revert back to what Christ has saved us from in his grace? Or will we trust God? And yes, we can honor God. We can trust him and bring glory to him knowing that we're held accountable by him, even in the midst of suffering. And then a final note about suffering in verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Your suffering is always subject to the nature of God. I love this. Your suffering it's always subject to the nature of God. In verse 19, we, we are told that God is faithful and he is our creator. God has brought life into our, our bodies physically. Even before we were formed in our mother's womb, God knew us. But not only did he orchestrate our physical birth, he orchestrated our new birth. So imagine every part of your life as a follower of Jesus is under the sovereign hand of God. This is why Peter writes, we entrust ourselves, we entrust our souls, we entrust our eternity to our faithful creator. So we continue to do what is right. This is Peter's concluding message in chapter 4. And oh, what a beautiful message it becomes that yes, we, uh, we, we respond to suffering by entrusting our lives to our creator, to God. So the reality of grace in adversity, suffering 101, Unjust suffering should not be a surprise. In suffering, there is joy. God's spirit is with you in your suffering. Your suffering brings glory to Christ and honor to God. And your suffering is always subject to God's nature. He's your creator. He is over you. He loves you. And oh, what a beautiful picture we have of grace being proven in the midst of suffering. Oh, this is a beautiful reminder that while we face circumstances that we can't control and while we look for answers as to why, know that God has you and his grace is real. His grace is there and we can lean upon him and we can, we can trust him. Uh, Peter Kreft was in an interview with Lee Strobel when the question was asked, how do you make sense of suffering? This was the answer that came up. The answer to suffering cannot just be an abstract idea because this isn't an abstract issue. It's a personal issue. It requires a personal response. It's not just a bunch of words. It is the word. It is not a tightly woven philosophical argument. It is a person, the person. The answer must be someone and not just something because the issue involves someone, God. How do you make sense of suffering? How do you make sense of disappointments that might have come to your life this week in a way you've never expected? You, you might be facing an obstacle right now that you have completely concluded there's no way around, no way through. I assure you, more than just that there's a way around or a way through, God already has that, God already has that planned. 
He, he saved you. He loves you. He sustains you. He goes before you. He forms your life. He's with you in adversity. And so look to him. Yeah, the issue of suffering and faith has but one answer, and it's a person, and it's, it's God in Christ for you and for me. Yes, grace proven in suffering. This is our story. This is our life. I'm glad that God raised up Peter to write this to a suffering church in the first century. I'm grateful that we receive these words today. Wherever you may be in your life, know that your circumstance is not the last word. God's grace is. It's the eternal word. It's the gospel. So yes, Jesus suffered so that sin could be done away with. That's the foundation. And his grace, like the songwriter has penned, will see us home. So I pray that you know Jesus. In fact, the scripture says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You know, right now you can pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I receive by faith your grace. I believe you died on the cross for me and I repent of my sin and I trust you. You can pray that right now. He'll hear your prayer. He'll hear you and he'll come into your life. He'll, he'll change your life. I know this because scripture, scripture says this. I know this because... This happened to me. So I pray that you'll trust Jesus today. There is a, a website location and a texting number on the screen right now. Please use either of those to reach out. We'll respond immediately because there's no greater conversation than that Jesus died for our sins. There's no greater decision than to trust him. And there's no greater time than right now. Love you a lot. Jesus loves you. And he calls you to receive his grace. Even in suffering, his grace is profound. His grace is real. His grace is for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to our hearts today. Thank you for this broadcast and, and this online service we've had. And Father, for everyone that has joined us, I thank you for their life, for their home. I pray you bless them right where they're sitting. Father, for uh, every person who's possibly watching this at, at a later time, Lord, right where they are, uh, uh, Lord, bless them and touch their heart. Lord, raise us all above our circumstances and our sufferings and the, and the petty, uh, petty trials that we sometimes become so saturated in in our lives. And Lord, help us to see what Jesus has done for us and to trust your grace and to receive your grace and to live thereby. Oh, Father, thank you for speaking to us. And as we depart from this service, help us to walk in faith and in trust and in dependence upon your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Depend upon God's grace. Depend upon Jesus. Trust him. And let's see God do some amazing things. So thank you for being here and stay tuned for a few announcements. Love you a lot. God bless.